Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. Hey, everybody. Today's uh, podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Verbo. Okay, struggling for the perfect vacation home. You want to impress, but you don't know where to go. Okay, you get, you know what, online, you start typing in a zip code or a place and you get lost, you know, just watching like surfing dog videos. Well, let me tell you, this is why you need Verbo, okay? Verbo does the hard work for you by matching you to the perfect place to stay every single time. I've been using this shit for 10 years. I love Verbo. Why? Because you get a personalized place to stay. You're away from home, but you're in someone else's home, which actually feels like your home. You can enjoy it. It's nice. I love it all. From condos to cabins to places with yards and grills and hot tubs, they got you covered. Search VRBO in the App Store to download the Verbo app today and put a stop to frustrating vacation searches. Let Verbo find a home that matches you. Today's episode is also brought to you by our good friends at Fake the Nation. Okay, primaries are just a short 11 months away. Oh, God, 11 months. So many people in this race. Um, it is time to know your Pete Budeleg from your Amy Kubelaris, and that makes now the perfect time to jump into Earwolf's political comedy podcast, Fake the Nation. It's hosted by Nagin Farsad and features a fast-paced, funny, smart, political discussion about this week's news. I love this show. It's such... I don't know. It's a, a way to look at politics and it mixes in humor so you don't feel overwhelmed or depressed at the end of it. Um, it will make you stay for a while because it doesn't actually take itself too seriously. And guests on the show are great. If we got Paul F. Tompkins, John Hodgman, Rhea Butcher, Larry Wilmore, Hayes Davenport, um, W. Kamal Bell, and John Lovett, they're all on there. So check out Fake the Nation wherever you listen to podcasts. It's 1976, and two cool dudes are about to do some slow journalism. It's all the president's men. Hey, everybody. Welcome to... Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, and I will be joined by Amy Nicholson in just a few minutes to talk about all the president's men. But first, I wanted to go and talk a little bit about Snow White. Uh, the reaction to this episode was very interesting. Um, I found that our Facebook group really loved Snow White, yet our Earwolf message boards 
didn't believe that it actually belonged on the AFI list. Ooh, what does that mean? I think that when you talk about this movie, you can't not look at the effect that it has. I know there are some potentially problematic areas, uh, as some of our Earwolf message board people have kind of chimed in with. But overall, I think this movie is a gigantic advancement for animated films, and its inclusion is important, as as important as it is to see Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd on this list. But let's see what else you have to say here. Uh, Mark Evan Naff, or at question Mark Naff, uh, writes, Hey, Unspooled, out of curiosity, I looked at all the fictional characters on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and it turns out they have a lot of cartoons on the Walk of Fame, including Snoopy, Shrek, Tinkerbell, and Woody Woodpecker. Shrek? Shrek's got a star? God damn, Shrek. That's good. You know who I don't believe should be on that? I I think Shrek should definitely be there. He's got like four movies. Woody Woodpecker, all right? Woody Woodpecker didn't add anything to society at all. I'd be like, what what is he? What is he? What kind of character is he? Can you you even remember any Woody Woodpecker scene? What's his personality, people? I don't know. All right, anyway. Max at Max Pacheco writes, In regards to their age, Dopey's inspiration, Kui, is younger than the others. In almost every popular version of the tales, uh, dwarfs are magical beings who live long, long lives away from humanity. But yet they're working in this uh, diamond mine. Who are they Who are they mining these diamonds for if they're so away from humanity? Uh, so someone's got them doing something or they've worked out a special deal. They, they, they're, they understand commerce. Believe you me. They understand commerce, all right? Let's not get too sad for them. Uh, Max goes on to say that they actually are older than 50 at birth. Love that. By the way, don't anyone steal it. That's my uh, new movie. It's going to be great. It's going to be Thomas Hayden Church in uh at 50 at birth. Uh, it's going to be a huge hit next summer. And it will get on the AFI list at 101. And we'll be so mad. Um, JC Alexander writes, uh, I loved the podcast and love Snow White. But where is the love for Beauty and the Beast? The first animated film nominated for Best Picture. Thoughts? This is actually a great uh, point here. Um, you know, I actually got some flack online because I called Snow White a kid's film. And and when I was asking how I should refer to the film, they said animated film. And I realized, oh, yeah, this whole category of films. I don't know why my brain equates it to children's films. I don't think that uh, children's films or kids' films is uh, pejorative at all. I think that that's actually an amazing thing to make a movie that can appeal to kids and adults and so often uh, you don't find those films and they mostly are animated fair. I mean, I, I would just argue that the majority of kids' films are animated. So that was where my confusion is. I didn't want to take it down, but you're right. Beauty and the Beast, does it belong on the list? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. Beauty and the Beast is just kind of circling around things that we're already doing. It's not pushing the medium forward. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Let's talk about it. Toy Story, you know, it is on the list, so we will talk about it. I think that we're looking at things that not are just great films, but things that really push forward the medium. And at that point, I don't know. I don't know. This is my opinion. Don't at me. All right, last week we asked you who should play Robert Mueller in the Robert Mueller eventual uh, Ryan Murphy FX miniseries that will happen in, I don't know, what, 20, 30 years. Uh, and you called in with so many great ideas. Take a listen. I think Robert De Niro is the easy answer for Robert Mueller, but after watching American Gods, it has to be Crispin Glover. I think James Cromwell would be a great choice because of his rugged jaw. 
but also mirroring his near wordless performance in Babe. Obviously, it's Sam Waterston. I'm going to give you two choices for Robert Mueller. Who should play him? Uh, either Brian Cranston or Chris Cooper. Kyle McLaughlin. I would also ask David Lynch to direct, and I would be very sad that Dennis Hopper is not available to play Donald Trump. To play Robert Mueller, I was trying to think of someone iconic with that stone face, and then I thought, you know who's perfect for it? John Cena. <laughs> I feel like I want to see John Cena as Robert Mueller. That's what I want to see. Uh, Crispin Glover, a little too weird for me, man. A little, a great choice, but weird. Uh, <laughs> I also like James Cromwell. It works. Um, well, thank you so much for calling in. And uh, without any further ado, let's get into all the president's men. It's 1976 when Colin Farrell, Reese Witherspoon, Melissa Joan Hart, and me were born. It's a year where the average income is 16K a year. Apple Computer Company is formed by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. The U.S. launches Lagos One Satellite. The Winter Olympic Games are held in Innsbruck, Austria. The $2 bill was issued... And the shows that were the most popular included The Carol Burnett Show and All in the Family. It's a very popular year for movies such as Rocky, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, MASH, Taxi Driver, and today's film, All the President's Men. Rated 77 on AFI's 2007 list, and it did not make the list in 1997. How about that? Amy, who's in it? What's it about? All the President's Men. It is directed by our buddy, the uh, Sophie's Choice director, Alan Pacula. What's up, Alan? It is written by, uh, it's controversial, <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, it stars Robert Redford, who basically came up with this idea, really shepherded it, forced it through. Um, and Justin Hoffman, they are playing the journalists from the Washington Post, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, the people who slowly, painstakingly, phone call after phone call, pencil scratch after pencil, pencil scratch, figured out that the burglary at Watergate was actually connected to... Richard Nixon, and it took them many, 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 many years and many, 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 many phone calls, and this is a dramatization of that. That we're taking another film from 1976. I mean, so far, Rocky, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Taxi Driver are all on the AFI list. That's four films on this list. What do you think it is about this year that, you know, deems so many films worthy? Well, I am probably wrong, but what I want it to be is that this was our 200-year anniversary as a country. Mm. You know, this was America's birthday. And I want to think that people were thinking all year, who is America? What do we stand for? Especially we all just went through this Nixon thing. We just went through Vietnam. What is this country? And that people went to the theater with that in mind. Like, there's kind of this framework over every film. Like, what does this film say about us, about America? And we're on two sides of it, because on one side it's rocky and it's— this film, All the President's Men. On the other side, it's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Taxi Driver, which I think shows where society's kind of at. Like, we are this triumphant one person over, you know, all obstacles. And then the other side of it is, like, one person put upon by the system who solely crumbles and, and breaks by it. Yeah, and it's weird. There's actually even ties where... Do you remember that Taxi Driver was sort of inspired in part by those notebooks of a wannabe assassin? Yeah. They mentioned the assassin here in this movie. They're like, oh, you should write about that case. What's happening with that case? And they're living in this whole real world tapestry of 1976. 
Well, you talked a little bit in the beginning about how Robert Redford really, you know, shepherded this movie. And I guess the story behind it is that he reached out to Woodward and Bernstein uh, and told them that they needed to tell the story, you know, when they were writing their book, like a procedural, uh, put themselves in it, which is something that Woodward and Bernstein really didn't want to do. And I think it takes their book and makes it into something iconic. You know, for me, my image of Woodward and Bernstein is Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. I mean, they they really personify these two guys. And I would argue they're the most important reporters of our time simply because they did do this. They put themselves into the narrative like Hunter S. Thompson had done in his journalism, like even Michael Moore. You know, when you put yourself in front of it, you become part of the story. And I think that this is uh, an interesting trend. Well, yeah. And what's really interesting about it is Redford reached out to them before this really broke open. Right. Like he reached to them out when he, they were just these people who were doggedly writing articles about it and it hadn't been proven yet. Like he he came on board. You know, there's a scene in the movie where they believe they've been set up and that they're now like exposed as being wrong about a piece of information in the press and everybody's mad at them. That was the moment when Redford was like, I'm really curious about these guys and I want to do a movie about them before they were proven right, which is fascinating because he was just interested in this idea that he kept seeing these two names show up in the newspaper, pursuing the story, chewing on it. You know, he was already interested in politics because he had just done this film, The Candidate, where he played a candidate. It's a very cynical film about like what it takes to get ahead in politics. And he noticed that these two guys were writing the story. Nobody else was writing about it. And if they did mention it, they just repeated what these guys said and gave them credit. Almost right. as though they were saying, we're not really saying this, but these guys are talking about it. What do you think? We'll move on. Well, it's interesting that these two men are the figureheads of this film, but yet the movie doesn't really deal with their personal life whatsoever. I mean, I don't know who Woodward and Bernstein are outside of this world, which I think is a really interesting thing about this film. And also, this is my hot take on it, is a big deficit of this film. This movie is a procedural in, in, the, in the cleanest sense of the word. Um, very similar to a movie like In the Heat of the Night, but in the Heat of the Night, there's a lot more character drama going on. Here, there is none. It, you are just watching them make phone call and interview. And you, as an audience member, if you're not so caught up in the whole scandal, it's kind of hard to follow. And I and I find this movie, I've watched it twice in the last year. I appreciate it and I like how kind of bare bones it is and how it really gets into the nitty gritty, but I find something lacking overall. I think the performances are great. I think the way that um, they edit the, the momentum is great, but almost because of the fact that they made it so not a Hollywood film, it's hard to sustain because it is just a lot of facts and dates. And we, the audience, don't even know how it adds up. And I wonder, as we get further and further away from Watergate, if anyone will be as invested, whereas in 1976, it might have been a lot more on people's minds. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you say that because a lot of what Robert Redford would say even at the time when he was researching this and explaining it and a lot of the people who were around in that moment – they would say, those two guys were fascinating. Bob Woodward was just like intense and kind of waspy and weird and really maniacal and on top of his game and like very detail oriented, you know, like almost unnervingly alert when you would see him in person, but kind of disheveled, strange. Right. And Dustin Hoffman's like Carl Bernstein was like 
a playboy, kind of messy. They called him the type the type of person who would rent a car on the Washington Post's like checking account, right? And then forget where he parked it, and even forget that he had the car. And then they would get this bill for hundreds of dollars later. <laughs> and that he was just sort of like a playboy mess. Right. But he was a brilliant writer, and that Robert Redford's character uh, Woodward was kind of a bad writer, uh, but like very very dogged. And that they were just these total opposites. Which doesn't really come across in the film. No, there's a great camaraderie between them. And I think I read in some of my research that, you know, they memorized each other's lines. So they almost are on top of each other, finishing each other's thoughts. And there's there's a nice relationship between them, but you don't get that they're yin and yang. It's not like I do my thing this way. You do, They're very much in tandem moving forward. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of an arc in this film where they start off... Enemies is too strong of a word, perhaps rivals. Yeah. Like, it's Redford's story. He's trying to write about it. Whenever he puts a draft down, Dustin Hoffman picks it up and rewrites it again. They have this kind of tense exchange right here. This is before they're friends. And and Robert Redford's like, why are you taking my stories, yo? And then what happens is Hoffman is like, well, if you think you can write better than this, then you write it. And he reads and he's like, oh, you're a better writer. If you're going to do it, do it right. Here are my notes. If you're going to hype it, hype it with the facts. I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you did. Woodward, Bernstein, you're both on the story. Now don't fuck it up. So there you go. Classic cop scenario. Now you've right. got to do this together. And what happens to their arc over the course of the film is by the end, they're just basically synonymous. People start calling them like Woodstein and Bernward. And right. that's a, as big of an emotional arc as they're really going to get. It's like them together. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, besides that exchange, I think there's a moment in an elevator where Robert Redford's like, do you ever stop smoking? Like, you know, it's like, it's not even a, a Felix and Oscar relationship. And, and to the film's credit, I have to say, because they're not fictionalizing it. And, and, you know, the way this film kind of came about, you're right. Like Redford's in there very early on. He's trying to put this thing together before these guys are even proven as being right. Um, he brings William Goldman, famed screenwriter, uh, to have a meeting with them. Goldman thinks that like he's almost auditioning for a job. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to write this film. And Robert Redford's like, well, I didn't even want you to write the film. And then, you know, the, he's writing a film that he turns in that no one likes. And then Nora Ephron and uh, Bernstein write a draft of the film. And that's a little bit more Hollywood-esque. It's and, like crazy. Like, yeah. Because, okay, uh, Carl Bernstein is dating Nora Ephron. They wind up getting married. And they return in this draft that's like basically – the Dustin Hoffman is like the sexiest, hottest, wildest party guy in D.C. He's like a hero. Right. And, when, and when Robert Redford reads the script, he turns to Bernstein. He's like, Carl, Errol Flynn is dead. And I love that, that this journalist who's like, I'm all about the facts is like, but I'm the sexiest guy in this movie. I'm writing about me. Well, it's it's funny because they sensationalized the story, you know, and actually one scene in the film is left in from the Nora Ephron, Carl Bernstein script, which was the scene where he tricks the secretary to sneak into Ned Beatty's office. That was the only scene that they saved because it didn't actually happen. You know, there's this scene that I also wonder if it's from that version of the script where Dustin Hoffman takes a girl on a date to try to get information. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like he's flirting with her. He's being a little bit sexy. I want to listen to that. And I also want to listen to the fact that Maybe it's for the documentary feel, mm -hmm. but they let there be an airplane that just interrupts their conversation, which adds, I think, to the credibility. Steuben's crazy. I never worked for Colson. That's what he said. I worked for an assistant. Colson was really big on secrets anyway. 
that's such a no-no on every film. You know, you hold for the plane, but she's reacting to the plane and there's no plane in the sky, which makes me even feel like they may have added that all in in post. I, and, and it's hard to hear her. Like, there is so many moments in this film where it's like hard to hear what is going on. Yeah, but like, it makes it documentary Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's so documentary that most of the movie is just this sound. Even when they're talking to people on the phone, you're hearing it through a filter. Like you have to, you have to really listen closely to hear everyone's whispering and talking. It's, it's not very presentational at all. When you get into the more cinematic uh, scenes, you know, the meeting of Deep Throat, that's sneaking into Nate Beatty's office. Uh, that's where the movie kind of picks up steam. Even in the beginning, when they're first like sussing out the court case, I think where it falls flat for me isn't just the research. It's like all the stuff that you would edit out in a law and order. It's, you know, it's, it's literally, there's moments in the movie where they're just, they have a giant list and they're just calling people like cross, 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 you know, it's like, and I appreciate it because it's, it's painstaking work, but I don't know if that's the most cinematic piece of work. It's strange. I mean, in a way, that's sort of what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Is this idea that the important things that have happened in our country take a lot of boring work? Right. Granted, that doesn't make an interesting movie. No, necessarily. But, it, but but the idea that things are changing slowly and seismically, and you can't even see the work that you're doing. Yes. You know, they're just sort of doing this on the line. Well, that's what I think is so great about the end. It's not like and they brought down Nixon. It's like no. It's like. And they just kept on working. I mean, the final shot is a beautiful shot of Nixon being sworn in for his second term as president. And they're just, you know, just clicking away, clicking away. And then you just start to see all the bylines. Boom, boom, boom. And it's so cinematic and so well done. But it's, you know, it reminds me of movies that I I really love, like Michael Clayton and stuff like that, that it just it just feels like there is. A chugging along nature. They're not heroes. They're not being carried off, uh, you know, on people's shoulders. The news. Like, you were right, kiddo. Yeah, I mean, basically, they just have a couple of people that are supportive of them. I mean, I think Jason Robards in this movie is fantastic, and it's really the talent of the actors that makes this movie kind of come to life because the the real facts are just kind of they're real, but they're not uh, dramatic. This movie isn't. It's not like they did it. Like sometimes they're making connections and they're like, we did it. And I'm opening with a Wikipedia page going, what did I, what did I miss? You know, and I just don't, I don't always see it. Maybe I'm dumb. Maybe I'm not putting it all together, but it's, it's a little hard. I mean, you're not dumb. I mean, cause like so much of how this movie is structured, I also find like, you know, confusing. I mean, I find reality confusing. Like everything that's happening now in the world, it's like lists and lists of all these names. And I'm like, who was that again? Right. And that's exactly how this was. It took like. Like all the president's men, you basically meet all of the president's men. There's like 50 of them and they all show up and there's like this name and that name and that name leads to that name. And each person gets a tiny scene or a little phone call. and They're like, oh, and it means something to the reporters that we don't necessarily even know. And maybe if you're in the audience in 1976, you're like, oh, that guy. That well, guy's a I real think. piece of work. But also. Like where are we, like in, in 20 years from now, will you remember the name Paul Manafort? Like is that yeah. name going to have any sort of gravitas? Right now it does. Like, you know, it's the reason why there's multiple books about this White House, you know, the Trump administration right now. We know Hope Picks. We know these names, but they will eventually fade. Which and, I find strangely comforting a little right. bit. 
No, the yeah. idea that like the people who are the biggest people in the headlines will someday also be forgotten, hopefully. No, it just but, keeps on moving forward. But it is also this idea of you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. The like when my parents would talk about this time in history, they would have this encyclopedic recall for like who was at the Department of State at the time. Right. And it must have been a moment like this because I always grew up feeling kind of dumb. Like, I don't know who's in like the head of the Department of State right now. Yeah. I don't know what's happening. And now I feel like I do. Thanks yeah. to the news. And so there's kind of this double thing happening here in the film, which you're absolutely right in calling out that like it is just a list of names. This is like, here's all the president's men. Sneezy, Dopey, Dorfy, Dorfy. Dor- yeah. I just invented Dorfy. But at the same time, that means the challenge for Alan Pacula is – in each of these scenes, he has to create a tiny story because we're meeting a character we're never going to see again. Right. You know, you're meeting this person for one scene. They might even just be a voice on the phone. And he has to figure out how to make them count, how to come up with a little arc for each one and how to make each scene stand alone, even when they don't all come back or circle back around or there's no gotcha. Or you even understand why they're seeing that person at that point. And I, and I have to say, hats off to him as a director because he – does create these iconic moments, whether it's, you know, Robert Redford, you know, getting paranoid that someone's following him, like the energy of that scene. I think you could even talk to the larger scale of the film that anytime they're out of the newsroom, everything is in shadows. And when they're in the newsroom, nothing is in shadows because it's like about the, you know, the light of the truth and the darkness of, you know, of the outside world. And I love- And there's this awesome fluorescence on the ceiling of the newspaper that we're always seeing. And they look basically like Star Wars. Oh, I mean, I do. I mean, you know, and by the way, that newsroom is an insanely accurate recreation of the real thing. I mean, the film was shot on location whenever possible, but they couldn't obviously, you know, shoot in a real active Washington Post uh, newsroom. So they went I mean, in they there. They tried, but I heard like everybody just saw Robert Redford walk in and they're like, oh, and no one got any work done. So it was like, all right, all right, all right. Well, they built like this full sized 33,000 square foot replica on the Warner Brothers lot. And it's, it, if I think the idea is that if you saw both side by side, they looked identical. And, I, and, and it feels like that. It doesn't feel like, you know, a lot of the times whenever you go into a, a police precinct and, you know, any of these movies, you, 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 there's an element of style or flash. And this is very basic and bare. And, and, and I think it adds, again, to a little bit of the sleepy nature of the film. Like nothing is out of the norm. It, it's almost it. It almost plays like a doc. That's what I was just about to say. Like what you're describing is like they're trying to make a documentary out of reality yeah. that takes away as much of the drama as they possibly can. I mean, in a way, like the production design of this film is an ode to paper. Right. Like there's just paper everywhere, stacks of paper. You look around the room and there's just paper all the way. I mean, they keep a deep focus. So you can see like the paper on the back of the Oh, I want to take notes after seeing this, like watching him on the phone, just taking notes after his yeah. first phone call. It's like, oh, paper I love and it. Paper yeah. and paper and paper. And like, ew, I get freaked out by hoardery stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like hoardery things makes me really, really nervous. And this film makes me nervous on edge just because it feels so much like a real cluttered office. Like everybody has too many books. Oh, and, but they, because you can't store it anywhere. And I even love looking at the typewriters with the ink stain on the side from an inky hand who just put the typewriter ribbon in. There's all those great details of this is what journalists are doing at this time. They, they, Their sources are all over. Their notes are all over. They're yeah. trying to put together a big story. And I mean, there are so many legends, like the production designers of this took the trash cans out of the real Washington Post and then dug through the trash and saw what was in there and then just duplicated it for wow. their own trash cans. Or like the prop master took Carl Bernstein's real wallet 
and just made copies of everything in that wallet, like the checks that were in there and wow. the pictures, and then gave the wallet to Dustin Hoffman, the fake one, and yeah. Dustin Hoffman carried it around to get into character. Well, I mean, Dustin like, Hoffman really became like friends with uh, Bernstein, and you know, to kind of understand, you know, who he is. All right, so our first sponsor today is a really cool company. Uh, they're called Fracture, and Fracture is really kind of revolutionizing the photo game, okay? What they're doing are they're printing your photos on glass, and they come ready to display right out of the box. They even uh, come with a wall hanger, and they look so Great. I mean, here's where I am with pictures. I take a ton of them on my phone. I never print them out. And then when I saw this service, I printed out two pictures of my beautiful, beautiful boys. They're the best. And it looks nice. It looks like art. You put it up in your house. People are like, how did you do it? I'm not telling you, but I'm telling you it's Fracture, okay? Because Fracture prints, not only are they uh, amazingly nice to look at and a little bit different and unique, they also are a thoughtful, unique gift for anyone in your life. They are a must-have for sprucing up your space. Their sleek, frameless design goes with any decor. And Fracture prints are handmade in Gainesville, Florida. Dated a girl from Gainesville, Florida. And I can tell you, she was great. And so I imagine she she works at a place where there's great factories. Um, all the materials are sourced right in the U.S. And Fracture is a green company operating on a carbon neutral factory. So come on, people. By ordering a Fracture print, you're actually helping the the ecosystem. All right. It's a known fact. No, I, I think that, you know, one of the best gifts you can give is a personal photo. Artwork. No, thank you, okay? But a photo that captures something that you can actually put on a wall that looks nice, that's a little bit more unique. You're not going to Target and buying some crappy frame. You're going to come out smelling like a rose. So give it as a gift. Put it up in your own place. Make yourself look and feel good because A, you're a great gift giver, or B, your place looks even better. So visit FractureMe.com Unspooled for a special discount on your first Fracture order. And don't forget to pick Unspooled in the one-question survey after checkout. That's how they know that we sent you. It's important that you click on that. Don't pick another podcast. Then we'll get mad and we'll have to come to your house and fight you. That's FractureMe.com Unspooled. FractureMe.com com slash unspooled for the best looking pictures uh, this side of I don't know I don't know where you live because I want to count you out anyway fractureme.com slash unspooled this story reminds me so much of basically like the George Clooney arc of mm -hmm. the 90s right you know you have this guy Robert Redford huge star coming mm -hmm. off just this massive string of hits still trying to make sure he had shed the pretty boy image right. he'd already shed it but I think he just couldn't help making sure Right. That it was gone, like, forevermore. And so he wants to do this very serious film, I think, in a way to prove that he is a very serious man. And he wanted to, he wanted it to be, like, black and white. He wanted it to be mm. a documentary, almost. He wanted him to not be in it, like you're saying. He wanted to basically do what George Clooney did a lot in the 90s, like, take me seriously. Right. Which I was thinking, like, as I was driving over here to the studio— when did that even start that like our actors, our serious actors were like determined to be taken extra seriously? Well, you know, Clint becoming a director. Well, even look at Redford. Jane Fonda. I mean, like you have all these amazing actors and I can talk about it from my experience too, not being an amazing actor, but just from being in this business, like you feel like you have this duty to get out where you feel like there is inequality or there is something that needs to be shared. And I feel like, you know, this is a time in, in the 70s where people were, you know, feeling that it was their duty to tell stories that exposed 
things that they were passionate about, whether it was, you know, the world of mental health or it was the world of, you know, investigative journalism. These stories were not the stories that were being told. So when you have power, can you tell a more persuasive story? And I think that that's all you hope for is like, we were talking about this a little bit before we recorded the podcast. Somebody like Jordan Peele makes these two movies. Once you become that successful, they make a hundred million dollars. Now you can make whatever you want. When you can make whatever you want, then the stakes become higher. You can't make like, you know, dude, where's my car too. Okay. But like, you didn't have Clark Gable being like, now I must tell my story or, you know, right. like the people. But do you think passed- that the times like the sixties and seventies bred a different type of actor than the forties and the thirties. Right. I mean, you know, you did have the, the people in the forties are like, I fought in the war and I'm going to tell you my world war two story. And it's going to be a gritty, you know, like, you know, there was a, there was a patriotism that was definitely an influence in all those films, you know, about, you know, the Jimmy Stewart, like, you know, Mr. Deeds goes to Washington, that, that idea, like it was a different kind of, I'm, I'm telling this story now. Yeah. But it wasn't like Jimmy Stewart being like, and I must direct it. I want to make sure right. you all okay, know I that I am like, not just Jimmy Stewart, lovely, handsome, rubbery face. Right. I'm Jimmy Stewart auteur. Mm, yeah. And I wonder if maybe it's just, you know, the people like Warren Beatty, you know, getting forward and going like, I, we can do this. And, you know, I think a lot of these big marquee actors, once they've been on set, you know, you're, you're so hands on. I mean, Robert Redford really says that he wrote this script with, you know, Pacula, like the, the, you know, so the another script gets handed in after the, uh, the Bernstein nor Efron script. And, you know, this is, again, by William Goldman, like, this is trash. They hole up for a month, uh, Redford and Pacula, and they rewrite it. And they say that about 10% of the script remains from William Goldman. But then uh, some researchers have gone back and looked at the original scripts. And they're like, it's roughly it's the same. controversial. Yeah. Like, who gets credit? I mean, I yeah, think a like, lot so of the times. People back and, like, read the original yeah. scripts and been like, this is basically the movie. Why are they saying they only kept 10%? Of- I, I mean, sometimes feel like people get so possessive where they are like, I changed two lines in that scene. Now I rewrote the scene. It's like, well, no. And you can't change the script. It's true. It's a true film. There, there's no other outcome. What is definite is that Goldman was miserable. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Goldman right. said after the fact, like if you like if you would ask me what I would change if I'd had my whole movie life to live over, right? I would have written. I would have written exactly the screenplays I have written. Only I wouldn't have come near all the president's men. It was not a happy experience. He is a you know a fiction writer who was to interpret these events, and I think Redford wanted something very specific. It's it's hard because you have. Uh, you know, then just write it yourself. And that's yeah. what I think he wanted to do. I think he wanted to have that power to write it himself. I think Redford was mad that Goldman didn't approach it like a journalist, that he wanted Goldman to do what he was doing, which is like, go to the offices, look through the trash cans. Right. And Goldman was like, I'm writing what I'm reading in this book. And he was like, right. no, like, be a gumshoe man. Like, pursue this the way that I would with this like kind of manic intensity that Redford was putting into it. But what I think is unfair is that Redford would then tell stories like, yeah, just because he met these guys, they randomly sent him a copy of the book and then he thought he was writing the script. And you're like, that seems like a lot of coincidences that it's, it sounds a little bit like, Oh, my ex-girlfriend. She's so obsessed with me. You're like, really? But it's the ego of the lead in this era. We're talking about Stallone. Remember in Rocky? He's like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I I choreographed all the fight scenes. I wrote the script. You know, it's like this. I think there is an ego here in the 70s. It's, It's kind of foreshadowing the era of the 80s greed and that kind of energy, because I think it's. 
it, 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 it feels like that. I don't think you feel that anymore. I don't think that you feel, I think that the auteurs that you get now are a little bit more humble, if that makes or sense. Or they're better at pretending to be humble. I would buy that. Yeah. I mean, but what I think is so ironic about all of this is that this is a movie that celebrates the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. The guys who don't need to be stars. Right. Weren't trying to be stars. And then the fact that they became stars when all of this news finally broke, when people finally paid attention to them, was so weird that I think that's one of the things that bonded Dustin Hoffman to Carl Bernstein. He's like, I know what it's like to be a full-grown adult and suddenly be really famous. It's like, it's strange when you didn't prepare for this your entire life. And yet, yeah, like, in the scenes, like, everything that's honored here is just people who are listening, people who are trying to pay attention for what matters to them. They're like, they're empathetic isn't the right word, but the kind of acting that Robert Redford does in this movie, I think is so subtle. Here, let's listen to this scene and then just sort of analyze it for a second. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this, this is difficult for me. Uh, I'm, I'm caught in the middle of something, and uh, I, I don't know what. I, I what do you think it could be? Well, I, I deal with a lot of important people. People who work for the committee? Hello? For the, for the committee. The committee to re-elect the president? Yes. You see, I raise that money in, in cash, and uh, I, I have a winter home in Florida. Now, Is that I, Miami? And, and, and uh, I didn't want to carry all that cash around. Now, you can understand that. Oh, of course I can. So I had it exchanged for the cashier's check. And how do you think it got into Barker's account? And see, everything in there I love because it's so subtle. You hear him take in information as though he hasn't heard it for the first right. time. You know, kind of press for facts. You hear, like, this urgency in his voice. Right. But it's not overdone. It's not like... What? Boca Raton? You know, he does yeah. it kind of quietly, like he doesn't want to spook the guy. And then you hear him use just enough, like, kind of buddy-buddy charm, like, oh, of course. You know, put a soft tone in his voice. And he's just standing still. I mean, he's sitting still. And it's a close-up of a man at a phone and a voice on the other line. And there's just all these shades to it that I find really, really intelligently done. And it goes back to, I think, Pacula, who has this very deft hand. He creates a narrative that feels real and puts a pace to it. There's a rhythm to this movie. There's a there's a style and tone to this movie that is so, like, perfectly walked. No scene feels too uh, blown out or overexposed. It feels like, no, I'm watching real journalists. And I think that, that that's a bold move in a time where, again, going back to these movies that we're talking about, Taxi Driver, MASH, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, Rocky, like, there is a t- this is a time for bigger films, and you view this film like that. And I think when I watch it the first time, I'm like, oh, can't wait, gonna get in this movie, and it's gonna be like deep throat running over here, doing all this sort of stuff. And it and it's just not. And to simply go away from that is really impressive. I mean, from a director standpoint, to stand that in that line. Yeah, I mean, like what Jason Robards, for example, mm-hmm. said, like watching all of these scenes happen, which he had to watch a lot of them happen because right. because in so many of the scenes they use that like crazy deep focus. We can see all the way to the back of the office, even on the days when like. Jason Robarts didn't have to do that much being Ben Bradley being like the head of all of this. He still had to be on set somewhere like in the back in his office, reading books, looking busy just in case you could see him. I mean, very much like the office TV show. You just were in the background. Exactly. Just so that the film had this texture of reality that was so important to everybody on set. But doesn't it feel like that thing where it's, Again, this director going, we need all of this. Do you really need it? I don't know. I don't know sometimes. Like, I, I like, like if he wasn't in the background, would you care? I don't know. I, I don't think you would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're probably right. Like, there is this limit where you're almost doing it more for just, like, the story in the PR circles. Like, mm-hmm. 
oh man, let me tell you about the film we just right. made. Did you know we copied the trash cans and we had Jason Robards doing origami in the background for two months? Right. It's it's sort of all this anecdotal stuff. Like it was, you can't not like it because it's all real. If you don't like it, it means that you don't like the truth because it. you don't like that line. They actually said it. And it's like one of those <laughs> things where it's like, it's almost protective, you know, it's like, uh, but again, this is a good movie. It's just sort of like I it it reeks of that. It reeks of like um a heavy hand of control and from all sides. I mean, you're talking about Jason Robards. I mean, Ben Bradley didn't want Jason Robards to play him because he didn't like the way that he walked around the newsroom when he came to visit. He's like, I don't think this guy gets me. And it's like everyone's weighing in on who they are and what they want to be. And it's like a very funny thing. It is at the end of the day a film, you know. Well, one of the things that Ben Bradley said to Robert Redford, because he was really nervous about this. I mean, it was so hard to get the post approval, mm-hmm. you know, that at certain times they're like, oh, let's just make it about a fake paper, right. you know, that did this story that we all know what we're talking about here. We all know who it is. But but like Pacula was so committed to realism. And so was Redford. They're like, we can't just sort of bunt. You know, Hoffman right. was on team bunt and Redford was not. But in their conversations they're having with Bradley, like one of the things that Ben Bradley said to Redford, he's like, just remember, pal, that you go off and ride a horse or jump in the sack with some good-looking woman in your next film, but I am forever an asshole if they had gotten this right. wrong. But that said, when Jason Robards was on set, one of the things he said about the difference in acting style between Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman is he said that Dustin Hoffman acts with his whole body, but mm. Redford acts with his fingertips. And that, to him, was a greater compliment. He said Redford had class. Maybe it's the way it's edited and maybe, you know, because a lot of the times you see something on set and then the way it's kind of filtered through and uh, is different. But I, I don't feel that Hoffman is showy in this movie. Do you feel like he is? Well, Pacula said like one of his quotes is about about being on the set was that he had never seen so many experienced professionals overacting in all of his life. Oh, wow. I think he had a hard time reining in Hoffman. Right. And keeping him keeping him normal because Hoffman is, I think, I think Hoffman's showy even when he's not showy. Like, right. he's he's so showily blank in The Graduate. Right. He's got the that kind of um, Al Pacino bug. You can't kind of take it out. Like Appreciate me. So, again, going back, we keep, you know, all roads lead back to Pacula for being able to rein this ship in because under the hands of you're going to say ship right there. Oh yeah. (laughs) I don't, and then you wouldn't rein a ship. So I don't know. Rein this horse, uh, rein this horse in because I do think this is one of those moments where I don't think Pacula gets enough credit for being a great director. And this is where the best directors shine. I, I'm such a fan of Michael Showalter and as a director uh, you know, I think what he did with My Name is Doris and what he did with The Big Sick is so subtle, but so effective. He kind of lets everyone rise to the surface without showing you like, hey, I'm behind the camera. And that's a real art of it and, and a really interesting director. You know, talking about Jason Robards, I want to play like a scene that I feel like is the most, I don't know, triumphant moment or to me in the movie, it's it's a moment I remember the most. And and I think it, it it's about like this level of realistic Triumph. In another movie, it might have been bigger, but take a listen to this. You know, once when I was reporting, Lyndon Johnson's top guy gave me the word. They were looking for a successor for J. Edgar Hoover. I wrote it, and the day it appeared, Johnson held a press conference and appointed Hoover head of the FBI for life. When he was done, turned to his top guy, and the president said, call Ben Bradley and tell him, fuck you. 
Well, everybody said you did it, Ben. You screwed up. You stuck us with Hoover forever. I screwed up. But I wasn't wrong. How much can you tell me about Deep Throat? How much do you need to know? You trust him? Yeah. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. And I hate trusting anybody. Run that, baby. I just love that scene. It kind of encapsulates the movie. It's one of the most triumphant moments in the film. Like, they're getting to publish the story. The weight is there. And it's so kind of subtle. It's like, run it. Like, yeah. it's not It's not like, we're taking this. Stop the presses. It. I don't know. And, and I listen to it. I kind of get chills from it. It feels like uh, that's a real lived-in, real thing. Yeah, like, his Ben Bradley just has so much authority. That he doesn't have to scream. He doesn't have to raise his voice. It's just you listen to him. Kind of like Marty Baron in the movie Spotlight. The way that Leif Schreiber played him. That the powerful man can be can afford to scale it back. Yeah. Or even later on when he's like, you know what? Let's have the boys back on this. Yeah. But what they also lay out so well in that scene is just the stakes of reporting. You know, which is, I think, we're having another huge national conversation about right now. Like, what happens when people feel like they can catch you in a lie. Like here, here's a clip that was actually really real from the press secretary at the time uh, for Nixon, Ronald Ziegler, gloating when Woodward and Bernstein got, he thought, or he could argue the facts wrong. A short time later at the White House, News Secretary Ronald Ziegler delivered a strong attack on the Washington Post. Why is the Post trying to do it? Uh, You have a man, uh, uh, the editor of the Washington Post by the name of Ben Bradley, I think anyone who would want to honestly assess what his political persuasions are would, yeah. would uh, I think, come to the conclusion quite quickly that he is not a supporter of uh, President Nixon. So I respect the free press. I don't respect the type of journalism, the shabby journalism that is being practiced by the Washington Post. All I know is that the story that ran this morning is incorrect and has been so uh, stated being incorrect by not only me, but by the individual whose grand jury, secret grand jury testimony, they based their story on. And that individual has denied that he ever so testified. Look, seeing that, you can't help but draw the parallels to the world that we're currently living in and, you know, this kind of subtle living outside of the lines, you know, it it goes back to even Clinton, you know, with I did not have sexual relations with that woman, you know, it's like this world that we live in is you can catch me in the facts, but if I deny it in a way that doesn't totally say it's not true, you know, it's it's all about like the, the beauty of language. And I think, you know, going back to earlier when you just played all those typewriter sounds, it's like, that's what it is. It's the most important thing is the word on the page, not, you know, what people are thinking or feeling. It's about how can you just, you know, give them a death by a thousand cuts instead of, you know, one solid blow? Yeah, I mean, if I can get away with saying this, Mm. Ronald Ziegler looks a little bit like Sarah Sanders. They actually, like, I feel like they actually have the same face. You know, they have, like, the kind of warmish, flat, brown eyes. But I will say that Ronald Ziegler, by the way, when Watergate first happened, 
when the burglary happened, he called it a, quote, third-rate burglary attempt, but said that certain elements may try to stretch this beyond what it is, which is a weird foreshadowing thing for him to have said. You know, that brings up an interesting point. Like, let's talk about the Watergate burglary. Yeah. I mean, the way that it happens here is so silent. You know, I like how they're just... I guess telling people the details that they would have known at the time about how, say, they had covered over the door with masking tape in order for the door not to lock, Mm -hmm. which was really the way that they were caught. You know, the security guard saw the masking tape on the door, thought like, oh, construction workers must have done that earlier, left to go on break, got an orange juice, came back, and there was new masking tape over the door. And that's when he called the cops. And by the way, the security guard in this film is the actual security guard that was in the Watergate burglary. Yes, again, kind of keeping that idea of like uh, verite. But I mean, I love it because it's just this like, the tiniest details are, are how everything gets screwed up. And there's this tension to it that's almost like this is a spy movie you know it's very dark all mm-hmm. you see is this one light that's on in this black building yeah and you have the pe- the guy across the street trying to communicate with them by walkie-talkie but they're shutting off their batteries because they want to conserve batteries on their walkie-talkies which is actually why they're in the building in the first place like they already had the microphones all set up in the dnc offices but they were wired to um see batteries and they just kept running out of batteries. So it was like the third time these burglars had broken in to just replace the batteries. That I didn't never realize that. It's all just these little small screw-ups, you know? Right. Which is kind of what I think makes this film feel really human to me. Is the idea that giant things happen for tiny reasons that seem very dumb. And they, you could just blow past any of the clues at any time. Because none of them seem really major. I mean, it reminds me of a thing that actually... You hear Deep Throat himself say, Hal, Hal Holbrook say, you know, playing Deep Throat at a time and nobody had any idea, idea who Deep Throat was or even if Deep Throat was a man or a woman. And this is how he explains how crazy things happen. Forget the myths that the media has created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys and things got out of hand. Hunt's come in from the cold. Supposedly, he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. They follow the money. What do you mean? Where? Oh, I can't tell you that. I mean, forget the miss is basically the opposite of, like, QAnon, right? Right. QAnon is like, the world is evil and everything is connected and there's these giant conspiracies. And this scene is about how complicated, wicked Illegal things can happen while it not being a conspiracy. A bunch of people can just be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, by the way, just playing that clip, I want to talk about one thing again, the idea of how things get in our popular culture. That idea of follow the money, not in the book, not in any of the documentation of Watergate, purely created for this film, which is a funny thing because it's, it's, it's I think, the most quotable thing from this film, Follow the Money. Yeah, it's the show me the money of 1976. Yeah, but it did not appear in the book or or anything that they ever wrote. And yet it is a consistent truth. Yeah, how do you think they dealt with the idea of Deep Throat? Obviously, we now know who Deep Throat is, you know, CIA uh, operative Mark Felt, right? But back then, again, we don't know. Male, female. Yeah, I mean, on set they were joking that it was Pat Nixon because, like, Woodward and Bernstein, you know, their second book, The Final yeah. Days, was about the last days of Nixon and saying that right. he was estranged from his wife. So they're like, maybe she just hated him. Maybe she was sick of being in the White House. But what do you think about Hal Holbrook here as a representation of this person? You know, is that 
the right way to go? Is it better maybe every time you saw him, he would be a different person? I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I guess that would maybe be more of a Spike Jonesy kind of a thing. <laughs> uh, but I mean, they made a choice of a older white man. Which was true and right. probably the safest choice you could have made. Well, do you who think that- knows a lot of things about politics and who's got connected into the inner circle? Right. Probably an old white man. I wonder if they showed some actors to Woodward and Bernstein or Bernstein and Woodward and said, like, who looks the most like Deep Throat? <laughs> like, you know, I don't, I don't know if they went into that kind of a detail, uh, because when you look at like pictures of Mark Felt, it, it does actually kind of now we know it, it, there is a similarity. I mean, Mark Felt was younger, though, at that point, I think like they aged him up here. But it is interesting that they made this choice because I feel like it would be a weaker moment if it was a dude who just always stayed in the shadows, because right. then that wouldn't be credible. It's almost by like putting forth something that is not true, that it mm-hmm. was not a guy who was exactly Hal Holbrook. It becomes more true because if we never saw the face, it was just like man behind a curtain. You'd be like, why is Robert Redford listening to a man whose face we can't see at all? Right. And you need to kind of be on Redford's journey. You need to be on their side. So it, it doesn't make a difference what they look like. It's the information that they're giving. Yeah. And again, that speaks to my issue with the film, which is these people are vehicles for information. And so each one of these actors, you know, has to convey that in a way that has dramatic, you know, like Deep Throat talks in riddles and metaphors. He's not into really interacting Um it's a really hard job. It's sort of like the job that like Star Trek actors have to do, where they have to passionately talk about the ship and the engine dynamics. It makes no sense in the grand scheme of things, but you have to give out, you know, just an exposition dump, but you have to do it in a way that carries drama. Well, yeah, and what I think is sort of clever in the way they cast, like, other roles, you know, like, say, like, Donald Sucretti, mm-hmm. the guy who's, like, famous for being, like, rat-fucking. We were right. rat-fucking them. You know, the actor they picked, Robert Walden, kind of looks like a rat. And so it ties these two images together. He kind of acts like one. He smiles too big. He's really mousy. You almost even hear it in his voice. Like, I like this scene because this is him explaining what he does in politics. And he's basically just being like, I am a troll before the internet. I am a person who spreads fake memes. Carl, tell me something. What, uh... What, what do you imagine the head coordinator does? Well, I guess basically you were involved in uh, recruiting other people like yourself, other lawyers. Lawyers? Like Alex Shipwood. I made it clear that I would not do anything violent or illegal. W- what do you mean by illegal? Watergate? I mean, that's the whole bugging. That's horrendous. And what kind of stuff do you guys do? Nickel and dime stuff. Uh, stuff. Stuff with a little wit attached to it. I mean, when you sent out on the musky stationery that Senator Hubert Humphrey was going out with call girls. <laughs> yeah, listen, if anything, it helped the man's image. <laughs> what, was the, what was the one on musky stationery that you sent out that said that Scoop Jackson was having a bastard child? So sometimes it got up to a quarter off the record. Can I just say, by the way, that like the musky campaign that he's talking about, yeah. the campaign of Edmund Muskie that he sabotaged, I was reading more about Edmund Muskie because I realized, like, oh, I've never really stopped. I've been like, who yeah. was this? What is he talking about? This Canuck letter that they sent that they said was from Edmund Muskie that really screwed up his presidential campaign. The way they tried to undermine him so that Nixon was not running against him in 72. Edmund Muskie was really rad. And I can't believe I didn't know more about him. Right. Like, he was the governor of Maine. He was awesome. He's this dude who was like, 
valedictorian, class president. He was son of like these working class Polish immigrants. He was so poor his whole life that he was always at risk of having to drop out of being in university. Like he went to good schools, but he was never really rich enough to stick around. Like he'd always have to figure out who could loan him money or give him sort of a gift so that he could stay in law school. Right. He fights in the war after this, and then he comes out and he becomes Maine governor, and he's a huge environmentalist, a real progressive guy. Like, he helped put forth the Civil Rights Act. He was all about clean air. Like, if he had not been rat-fucked by this dude and possibly beaten Nixon, because he was pulling way ahead of Nixon in the 72 campaign, we could have had a really cool president in the 70s, and I'm so bummed. Well, I mean, look— I think that what you're seeing here is not too far from what we're going through now in just different channels and, you know, from WikiLeaks to memes to Facebook, you know, it. and I almost feel like you can never make a movie like this again because it's so convoluted. Like, you want to talk about names and lists and everything like that. I think now it's so, like, the threads go so far in so many different directions that they don't even reverberate anymore. You know, big stories have broken and, and, you know, when you look at it all together, it seems giant, but the daily effect of it is just wearing off. You know, we're here, I think they're saying the daily chipping away finally knocks over, you know, the building. But I think now we're in a world where it's like, eh, I don't know if the chipping yeah. away helps. I think you need one big, maybe it's we're in a weird time where you need one big explosion. I, I don't know. I don't know what the new way know. to be a Woodward and Bernstein But maybe is. at the time they felt like all their chipping wasn't going anywhere either because it yeah. took years. Years. Nixon didn't resign until 74, you know? By the way, just as like another weird like musky aside, Pete basically was done out kind of like a Howard Dean because what happened is like when all these fake stories started to run, they were running in this one paper, you know, that was running just bad stories about him that weren't true. I guess kind of like what you would say of like a WikiLeaks sort of thing. And he got upset. He gave a speech where he was like calling this newspaper's editor a gutless coward for printing all these fake things about him and not having the proof and not taking it back. But he gave this speech in the snow. And because it was in the snow, people thought he was crying. And so they, it gave this impression of him as being like overly emotional. And suddenly this guy was like a military war hero, a really stand up dude was basically like considered emotional. And the idea that it was snowflakes. Okay. People. We all know that we want to look good, but it's expensive to do it, right? I mean, how many times have you thought, oh, I should buy a new suit or, oh, I just have to wear the same suit again? Well, this is where my friends at theblacktux.com comes in. They are offering you designer rental suits and tuxedos for a pittance of the cost it would cost to actually buy these and so you rent these things you look great for your event you feel great about yourself you put them back in the mail you send them back no one knows the difference all of a sudden people see you at different events and start saying hey you're the style person you're the style person you're always wearing a new suit and go haha I'll never tell but what does your closet have nothing in it because you're renting it and you're sending it back let me tell you how it works okay they got this easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo right to you you pick a style you request a free home try on so you can feel the fit and quality beforehand they also have showrooms all over the country you can find your fit and plan your look from there they'll ship your order to you two weeks before your wedding so you can check it out one last time with over five 5,000 five-star reviews. You won't find a rental experience or design like the one that you find at the Black Tuck. Now, I'm telling you, they're telling me to tell you to get it for a wedding. I'm telling you, get it for anything. Get it for a funeral. Look hot 
at your funerals. Not enough people are taking attention away from the deceased person. And I'm telling you, it's your chance to do it. All right, here's the deal. Rent your suit or tuxedo at blacktux.com and enjoy $20 off with the code UNSPOOLED. That's $20 off with the code UNSPOOLED. That's blacktux.com, code UNSPOOLED for $20 off your purchase. Okay, we have somebody awesome right now in the studio sitting right here. Her name is Liz Hannah. You know her. She wrote the film The Post, which Liz, in my very first question, I'm just going to blurt into it. The Post has been called like a prequel to All the President's Men. Were you thinking about that when you were writing the script? For sure. Um, All the President's Men was a very uh, important film for me when I was growing up. It was, you know, my parents were baby boomers. They really believed in the ideals of freedom of speech, freedom of the press. You know, they were huge Bobby Kennedy fans. Um, And I was raised watching these types of films and watching these, reading these types of books. All the President's Men is a thriller. It's it's a film that takes something that could be quite dull, um, given it's a paper chase, but still it's that a lot of it is them trying to write something and not having anything to write and trying to track down a story and not and having all these dead ends. And the pace of it and the intrigue of it and the character development that's in there. I mean, I can spend two hours talking about Ben Bradley alone, and he's in, I think, 18 minutes of the movie. So it was a huge influence for me um, structurally when writing it. And and at the same time, you know, we don't really make movies like that anymore. We don't make these 70s political thrillers. And I was dying to see one. And so I tried to write one. That's where it kind of all started. (laughs) Well, is it good or bad for your creativity to watch all the president's men often as you're doing it or have this kind of vague president's men tone that lingers over you but not be thinking about it in specifics or? I definitely, while I was developing the script and structuring it, and I do it with everything I do, I have sort of a, a Bible of 10 movies or television shows that are super influential to the style of what I'm writing. And that could be there's a character in there that I think is really accurate to the time or is a really interesting character that I want to try and figure out how they did their arc. Um, It could be tone of the movie. It could be structure. It could be any of these things. So I sort of have these 10 movies and I kind of religiously watch them while I'm breaking the movie down or even while I'm doing the horrible like monotony of you sit on the couch and stare at a wall for 10 hours trying to figure (laughs) out why in God's name you decided to write a movie about this subject. Um, And then once I start writing, I put them away. Like I don't watch them. I don't think about them unless I get stuck. If I'm stuck on something, then I'll go back to it. You know, in All the President's Men, Catherine Graham, who's the focus of your movie played by Meryl Streep, you know, she's this off-camera quip Mm -hmm. where you just hear a voice. You hear Attorney General Don Mitchell say, tell Katie Graham she's going to get her tit caught in a big frat ringer if that's published. What was she doing during this time in real life that wasn't in the film? She was taking home those boxes of uh, the articles and the research every night and reading them. She was super involved with Ben and talking about what they were going to publish, what they weren't going to publish. I mean, she was very actively involved. I wouldn't say, as far as I you know, understand it. I wouldn't say she was as involved as she was in the Pentagon Papers. And that was one of the reasons that was I really wanted to write the post was because it was about the formation of this team. Watergate and the publishing of, you know, all of the tapes and everything that happened because of the break-in wouldn't have happened had it not been for the relationship that Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley were able to solidify during the Pentagon Papers. Um, and so, she, but having said that, she was very involved. And actually, she talks about in her book, in her memoir, she talks about how 
uh, Pakula had wanted her to be in, not her personally, but a character for her to be in the movie. And she was really nervous about it. Then eventually she was not obviously a character in the film and that she always felt sort of sad that she hadn't been depicted or hadn't been a part of it because she really, you know, that was such an important part of the post-life. But at the same time, in a very K-Gram way, was like, well, I just wasn't important enough to show on screen. Yeah, no one I who would have been good at playing her, like, at the moment in 1976. Huh. I mean, every part back then went to Faye Dunaway. I was but. just going to say Faye Dunaway, <laughs> but she's, like, probably, like, 20 years too young yeah. at that point. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Hepburn? Always. I mean, the answer, if, if, if that is an option, that one's always I mean, look, if, you, if you're talking about Meryl Streep and you don't have Meryl <laughs> Streep at, in 1976, you go to Katherine Hepburn. <laughs> well, how does that, like, parallel the Jason Robards Ben Bradley and the Tom Hanks Ben Bradley? I mean, I think definitely when Tom Hanks signed on and when he was doing Ben Bradley, you know, I think he, he was doing his own Ben Bradley. And very much we wanted to differentiate who this guy was. And, you know, Bradley is, is, was as a human, a little gruff, a little, uh, had a little bit of an edge to him, uh, an endearing gruff and edge. But, and that's a thing that obviously Robards has, you know, reading the phone book. And I think people don't often realize that Tom Hanks has, has as well. One of my favorite performances of his is League of Their Own, where he's, you know, sort of this edgy, alcoholic, reformed baseball player who, you know, one of my favorite lines from the movie is like, there are dozens of people waiting for you to play. And it says everything you need to know about what this guy thinks of these women and what he thinks of this. And I think Hanks is just so incredible in it. And this was kind of an opportunity for him to do that side again, is to be a little edgy and a little gruff. And I think also, you know, accurate to Bradley at the time, the the, the real difference between the post Ben Bradley and the um, all the presidents men Ben Bradley is he was completely insecure. You know, they didn't have a leg to stand on when they were doing the post. They didn't um, have the backbone of we're one of the best papers in the United States. They were like the second best paper in Washington, D.C., regardless of the United States. So by the time Watergate happened, they were now competing with the New York Times. So it's a little more of an assured uh, ben Bradley depiction. Watching All the President's Men, you know, years ago, and now having the post to watch and then watch All the President's Men, it makes you more aware that this whole office building is really like a bunch of matches ready mm-hmm. to go off, that they've been through this trauma, mm-hmm. you know, this tension. Mm-hmm. And this isn't their first rodeo. And right. I don't know if that makes it harder for them or, or more confident, but... Well, I think it's also, it made all the younger reporters more hungry because they were like... We know what we can do, and we know we have a publisher and an executive editor who are backing us, who are going to back the real stories, which I think is one of the best parts of All the President's Men. And it's so accurate to journalism, which is you don't have it. You don't have the story. You don't have the story. And it's interesting because kind of the villain in a lot of ways of the movie is Ben Bradley because he's the one that's the guy saying, you're not – I'm not going to publish this. You're not ready yet. And – I think that is extraordinarily accurate, not only to who Ben Bradley was, but also to what this situation is like, which is you're under the microscope now. Like the Post is on, they can't publish anything that's not accurate, that's not true. And um, them being able to go toe to toe and uh, with the White House and back their guys is, I think, really influential to that newsroom. I'm wondering, like, how will it be to make movies about journalism right now in the present? 
you know, because it looks so different, even the style. Like, mm-hmm. people aren't even using pencils that much anymore yeah. or landlines. Yeah. I mean, we had a lot of typewriters in, in the post, so that was uh, – which – um, was a little different <laughs> and a little loud, but, um, and Tom Hanks is a typewriter nut. He is. He sat down at every single typewriter and made sure they worked. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you could write a movie about journalism now. Um, I think, I think it's, well, one thing that's never changed is it's about the people, you know, I think people who become journalists, I think in particular people who become political journalists that are reporting on these things are admirable and should be extraordinarily respected by anyone, regardless of what you think of them as a person. The problem with making a film about journalism in 2019 is that journalism is now divisive in a way that it has never been before. You know, at at the very least, we all agreed that there was a truth, like a, a some type of truth to get to. And now no one agrees on what the truth is. And so I don't know how to make that and, and have anybody believe you. Like that's the, and I mean, journalists are having a hard time making people believe them. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, what changes when you tell a story when it's not immediately raw? Mm. Cause it's, it's shocking to me, like how fast all the president's men came out after this all happened, yeah. like that it really was just immediate, like you just lived through this. Because I also think there's no end yet. At least with Watergate, there was an end. It was a, it was sort of a contained event. It went on for a number of for a number of years, but there was an eventual end to it. Now we're living in a time where we've been dealing with something for two years, going on four years, going on God knows how long, and I don't know what the eventual end is. So to to watch something about what's going on right now feels like a chapter in a much longer story. And I do ever think about all the true stories that might be disappearing because people are dying before we know what to ask them. Wow. That was a heavy one. Oh, sorry. I think no. about that way too much. I think about that every day. Yeah. I definitely, I mean, I've never articulated it that way, I don't think. But yeah, I mean, a, a really good friend of mine is a journalist. Um, he used to be at Politico, and he now has been doing oral histories about 9-11 for the last three years, maybe. And he's been collecting, I think he has 500 oral histories of 9-11. And it's not just, you know, the White House, and it's not just... Um, people at ground zero it's people like all over the united states and everyone who's affected and that i've been thinking about that a lot lately because i think when we have these events that happen that are globally felt they tend to be um put into the minutia of a certain amount of people's experiences and we don't realize how many people around the world had their own experience on that specific day and so i think that for me is I, I'm very much looking forward to that, and I hope he continues to do it with other um, sort of events. Obviously, 9-11 is very specific, but um, I think that would be really fascinating. And yeah, but whew. I mean, we were ta- again, we were talking about To Kill a Mockingbird, like the fact that Harper Lee, you know, never did sort of one of these like big deep down interviews is just going to kill me one of these days. And I was going to ask you the evil question, because for people who have not seen your tattoo mm. or who do not know, you have evidence of your love for To Kill a Mockingbird. I do. I have actually, I have a tattoo and I have a dog named Boo Radley. So it is <laughs> living and inked on me. We are sooner rather than later, actually much sooner rather than later, getting to To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick one of these two films as your favorite, Mockingbird or President's Men, give me your pros and cons. President's Men is probably my favorite film of the two, but purely because 
the book exists to kill a mockingbird so I can sort of have it both ways because <laughs> then to kill a mockingbird still exists for me. You know, look, here's the thing about to kill a mockingbird. It very much exists at the time that it was written and it very also much exists at the time that it's being told about. And it weirdly or not weirdly is unfortunately more topical as we go on in in our 21st century and it shouldn't be um but the things that they're being that are being dealt with and the topics that are being dealt with in to kill a mockingbird are very much in the conversation but i think the movie there's something about gregory peck's character as atticus that is almost too perfect that is hard to swallow now in our 21st century existence as somebody who is completely infallible, who is a white man in Alabama representing a black man and not having any fallibility in what his community is doing or any uh, or the culture of that world. But don't get me wrong, love Gregory Peck. But I, I think that part is to see him not to to not have any weaknesses is is a little one a little hard to wrap your head around in this day and age. Whereas I think presidents men. Look, I'm a big believer in watching things about the past to remind you of the bad things that have happened and how we shouldn't repeat them. And Watergate and Nixon are things that everyone listening should probably pay attention to right now and see how we got ourselves out of it. And they're living documents of history. And I think that for me probably would take the cake. Well, Liz, it has been awesome getting to talk to you. And let's take this moment. What have you been working on since the post? What's going on? Well, funny you should ask. I have a movie coming out May 3rd with Paul Shear. Long shot. Super excited. Charlize Theron. Seth Rogen. Um, June Diane. June Diane. Um, who else? We have a million people in this movie. It's so exciting. Lisa Kudrow. O'Shea Jackson Jr. Um, who, for me, is just... He has one of my all-time favorite scenes of that movie. Super excited for it to come out. We just premiered at South by Southwest last month. and um, It killed at South by. It did. Well, we we also had Boys to Men do a special performance. So I'm hesitant because I'm like, hey, guys, if I saw Boys to Men in, in, theater, in live in concert, I'd be pretty excited about it too. But no, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me about this movie. It's I think it's, it's funny. It's a romantic comedy. We haven't had a romantic comedy in so long. Charlize is so fucking funny in it. And I just am so excited for people to see her do something that she is so good at and doesn't get the chance to do that often. And, you know, Seth is just, he's a badass. What can you say? He's one of a kind. So I'm super excited. Now I want to see Charlize Theron's Catherine Graham. Hey, I know, right? Might have to do a, a prequel. <laughs> we'll do a prequel. Yeah. A gramathon? Uh, yeah, a gramathon. I like that. But <laughs> I see now I want the Catherine Hepburn gram too, which I I don't think I'll ever get, unfortunately, unless we get holograms up in there. Yeah. Or ask ask Steven Spielberg how like Jurassic Park cloning technology is going. Oh, yeah. They are all, dinosaurs are all women. So that could be interesting. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. I mean, so Amy, let's talk about this film, I feel like it comes out in a time where people are wanting to see this. It's on people's mind. The book is a huge hit. This is this is a talking point of the time. Was it received as equally well? Yeah, it was received pretty well. I mean, the common thing that you saw in most reviews were like, it should be boring, but it's not. It was right. kind of like, I really liked it, even though I would have expected this to be boring or tedious or the way that maybe we felt like even seeing something like Vice was too close to home. Right. There's a weird thing that's going on in these reviews. And I saw it again when we were doing The Graduate that I just started wanted to kind of flag because 
it's so unusual for me that this was normal. Mm-hmm. But the way everyone kept referring to uh, Redford and Hoffman is that most people saw them as more distinct than we do because mm-hmm. they kept referring it to the wasp and the Jew. Or wow. I'm just like, that's so weird that yeah. that was a common way of just being like, they're very different. Look, one's waspy and one is Jewish. And now I'm just like, would I can't imagine we'd ever. We'd never be referring to an actor as the yeah. wasp and the Jew. Yeah, we'd never, I think, be using that language. But I think we'd also not even be seeing it in that same way. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't think that that's how I, when you watch this movie, you're not saying like, oh, that's the two things at play here. But anyways, here is a review from the Herald Examiner. It's by Richard Koskelly. And his issue is basically what you're saying. Like, he doesn't feel like we really understand Woodward and Bernstein. And he's saying, like, here they are, obsessed with the story, chasing it down. And the film doesn't really tell us why they care. And he calls that, like, a huge problem. He says that we would like to understand more of what motivated Woodward and Bernstein to pursue the story this ferociously. Yes, we see that they are, quote, unquote, hungry young reporters. But are they genuinely such preternaturally noble, idealistic young men whose devotion to higher truth is all? You know, it sounds nice, but why men do something with overwhelming passion is at least as interesting as what they do. Right. So he's like, the why is not here. And that the film. Well, I would argue that's a dig that a lot of people gave Vice, too. Like, why is he doing this? You know, what, what is behind this character? Exactly. And he says that the film falls too often into the old fashioned concept of bad guys versus good guys, and that a strong dose of troubled humanity would have helped both characters come alive as people instead of as attractive symbols. He also concludes, skepticism is mandatory if democracy is to survive. And logic plays a smaller role in human affairs than we might hope. Well, I do think that this reviewer is on to something. I think all the side characters are the most interesting performances because there's something at stake for them. And we're seeing why the things are at stake. I shouldn't be saying this. Uh, Don't quote me on this. You know, when I was in your shoes. Especially Um, Jane Alexander, the woman who didn't show up. And she's so nervous and has to keep drinking coffee to get her to calm down. She's She's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah, because she has stakes and we don't get their stakes. Right. And so when I see this movie, you know, for the first time in the last year, I'm also looking at it as now a viewer of amazing documentaries. You know, uh, even in the last year, you could count on your hand like five great documentaries that tell a story in a more exciting way. And, you know, we we talked to Liz Hanna earlier who tackled this, you know, the same way. Like, I think we've evolved a little bit and can find this balance a little bit better. I, for my money, I don't believe this belongs on the best films of all time. I think that Woodward and Bernstein are culturally significant, but I don't think that this movie needs to be on this list. I don't think that in the other films that we've seen, it stacks up, uh, you know, as a crucial piece of filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll have, I mean, Woodward wrote a book about the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. so maybe that will be on the list someday. I want to see the film actually based on the last days of Nixon. I think that sounds fascinating to me. Yeah, and, I, and and no, like, again, I can sit here and talk about how great uh, Alan J. Pacula is, you know, in directing. I just feel like it is being so connected to telling the truth and getting so into the micro details takes it away from being a great cinematic event. If this story could be told probably a little bit better um, if maybe William Goldman's script, uh, you know, or they let him kind of do the flourishes that they may have taken out. I mean, although... It seems like most of his stuff was in there, so who knows? Yeah. I mean, it's on here because it's conflated with history, mm-hmm. right? Right, exactly. You can't take it off because 
I think people feel like, oh, it's important. It's an important film. I mean, what happened in our politics is important. I don't know if this film is like the perfect distillation of it. I mean, what do you think? I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fine. Just, but it's yeah, fine. I mean, I love I love it as a journalism movie. Yeah, you know, I love that. Because yeah, sometimes my job has to teeter into journalism. Right. I do a lot of like long form pieces. Yeah. And it's interesting to me to see how a journalist works. Right. You know, you introduce yourself right away. Maybe that puts them on guard. Like, I I was always more of the, like, subtly, like, talking to a person on the street. Right. Instead of being like, I'm from so-and-so. Right. And I like that. I like anything that is a tribute to hard work. Well, I like, mean. Like, how to sweep your house if you're a squirrel. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are a lot of great, you know, films about journalism, too. I, you know, I think, you know, if you're looking at even a movie like Shattered Glass, which I kind of feel like gets a little bit pushed off to the side, but that was a great uh, film about, you know, another true life situation. And I think then we have these other fictionalized journalism films that are, you know, rush it to the editors, you know, and then of course we have, you know, Kermit the Frog and uh, Fozzie the Bear and the Great Muppet Caper, and they're trying to break this whole, you know, big uh, diamond theft ring. And, you know, and it's, you have many different ways to view. Many uh, different ways. Even, Jack Warden also in that film. <laughs> Even a Simpsons way. Oh, yes, yeah, perfect. Indeed, because what we have here, this is from the episode Sideshow Bob Roberts, where Sideshow Bob has illegally gotten himself elected mayor of Springfield, uh, upsetting everybody. He is now using his power to go after the Simpsons family, and they decide they have to expose the truth about how he cheated to win office. He's already a murderer. Everybody knew this. Everybody knows he's a crook. How did he get to take control of Springfield? And so they find their own deep throat. You're on the right track. Follow the names. How the hell do you know? I can't tell you who I am, but I worked on the campaign. <laughs> hey, Mr. Smithers! <laughs> well, you might as well give me a ride home now. Never gone behind Mr. Burns' back before, but Sideshow Bob's ultra-conservative views eh, conflict with my choice of lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, Amy could not join us for the end of the episode, but we did roll the die. Trust me, believe me, we did. Uh, and uh, we came up with Treasure of the Sierra Madre, a uh, Humphrey Bogart film, uh, which is a real treat. If you have not seen it, I was talking about this film the other night to a friend. If you've not seen this movie, uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed at all, but we want to hear from you. Um, what do you think the treasure of Sierra Madre actually is. Uh, so give us a call. If you've not seen the movie, if you've seen the movie, then you're cheating. Uh, give us a call at 747-666-5824. Um, all right, that is 747-666-5824. Let us know what you think the treasure of Sierra Madre is if you've never seen the film. And also keep this conversation going on our Facebook uh, message group and on our Earwolf message boards. Uh, we love seeing all the kind of interaction that we have here. And we're going to put up a little uh, poll again to see if you think All the President's Men actually belongs on the AFI list. Go to our Twitter page at Unspooled to, uh, to weigh in and make sure you head over to Podswag always to get your unspooled poster with a Zoe Decahedron. You can roll along with us, even though your rolls don't count, but ours do. Uh, and just check off the films. We're almost at 50 people. We're almost at 50. Only 50 more to go. All right, we'll see you next week for The Treasure of Sierra Madre.
Today's show is brought to you by Fracture People. We know that photos make our lives. It's how we judge each other on Instagram. It's the way that we feel good about everyone in our life. We can go back and look. Oh my gosh, how did I age? When did I look better? Why am I bald now? Anyway, these are the questions that we ask when we look at these pictures. And Fracture wants to take these pictures that live in our phone and bring them into the real world. This is like amazing. This is like a, the plot of a great movie. Uh, Fracture is going to let you print the pictures that you have and put them right on glass and they come easy to display right out of the box. They're sleek. Their frameless design goes with any decor and they make a thoughtful and unique gift for anyone. So do me a favor. Take something off your phone, put it on glass, okay, and let Everyone compliment you. Where'd you get it? Oh, I'll never tell, but I'm telling you, it's Fracture. So go to FractureMe.com slash Unspooled for a special discount on your first Fracture order. Don't forget to pick Unspooled in the one-question survey after the checkout. That's how they know that we sent you, and we appreciate it. So go to FractureMe.com slash Unspooled for a special discount to get them picks on the shelf. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and he crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make Mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.